I'm really passionate about preaching through the Bible and going and preaching through books all one at a time. But there are some times when I think, can I read a passage? Is this really such a good idea? And in a minute you'll see why I'm probably thinking that this minute. Because the next part of 1 Corinthians reads not like a passage of scripture so much as an article um, from OK Magazine. Because it involves a scandal. Paul moves us on from teaching about wisdom, about the power of the Holy Spirit, about division in church, to something that is a very difficult pastoral situation. And I just need to say at this point, this passage does deal with things of a sexual nature. Um, So if by any chance you do have any children with you, I'm not going to discuss it in any kind of graphic way, please don't worry, but it does deal with those kind of themes. If there's anything that isn't suitable um, for anybody at any point, I will not be offended if you want to go for a wander. Um, Or if you get bored and you want to go for a wander, that's fine as well. I don't think that will happen with this passage, though. So, if you've got a Bible in front of you, and you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, page 1083, it has the encouraging title, Dealing with a Case of Incest. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the man who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the sinful nature so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with any who claim to be fellow believers, but are sexually immoral or greedy, idolaters or slanderers, drunkards or swindlers, with such persons do not even eat." What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. We need to pray, don't we? Let's pray. Loving God, we acknowledge that this is your word today. That means it has your authority to speak into our lives, to challenge our hearts, to encourage, to equip. And Lord, we pray as we look at what is a very difficult passage of Scripture this morning, that you will speak into our hearts in whatever way your Holy Spirit so desires. So Lord, we come before you humbly and we say, speak to us. Give us wisdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. On Wednesday this week, our little car that we've had for a few years, came to the end of the road. 
Oh, it's really sad. Claire said, don't bore them with any more car stories. You know, this car has been breaking down and going through all kinds of traumas in recent weeks. But I was driving, and I was driving out of Lim, and a light came on on the dashboard, and the steering went, the power steering. I don't know why a car that is so small suddenly feels like a Cold War tank to drive when the power steering is gone. But I managed to get it to the garage. So I took it down to this garage, and the man came out to have a look at it. You know what mechanics are like? came out and started, you know, they, they look at your car and they go, and then he starts rubbing his face like this, you know, this is going to be expensive if you want it repaired. And he eventually turns to me and says, can you afford to swap this car? And so I say, well, yeah, we were planning on swapping it before its MOT was due in a few weeks anyway. And he said, get rid. Bin it. It's only going to cost you more money if you keep it. The only thing we could do was to get rid of this car. So it had one last drive of shame across Warrington as we parsexed it for something slightly better. Don't worry, I did tell the garage, there was, or Claire told the garage there was a problem with it. But we took it, and it's now gone. Reading 1 Corinthians 5 this morning, it's not a pleasant, soothing passage of the Bible. It's not the type of passage of the Bible that, you know, remember those promise box things that people used to put the promises of God in and take one out for encouragement? You probably wouldn't want this passage in your promise box. It's not the kind of light reading to comfort you before bedtime. At first reading, it isn't affirming or encouraging in any kind of way. It's the kind of passage that actually, if we use it out of context, it can give the church with the reputation of being judgmental, cold, highly critical, and unloving. Is Paul really saying that some people are like our old car? That the best thing for them is actually to get rid of them? And not even to part X them, but to hand them over to Satan. Serious, serious words. We need to dig. We need to go digging in this passage and see what's actually going on. What's the situation that Paul is facing? Well, first of all, we mustn't read this passage in isolation. It's very dangerous when you take a passage of Scripture and read it and then start to apply it without seeing the context, without seeing what has gone before and what comes after. If you were here last week, we were doing chapter 4, chapter 3 and 4, and Paul was saying how he was the apostle to the church in Corinth. He was the father of the church, the one who loves this group of people, the one who has been called by Christ to nurture and grow this infant church in its faith. And this isn't a big church. You know, the New Testament churches were not sort of hundreds of people, probably 20 or 30 people meeting in someone's home in Corinth. But now he's got to the point where he has to address a really serious situation in the church. I don't know if you've ever had those incidences where you go to see somebody and you know, both of you know, you've got to talk about something really serious. And it's like the elephant in the room when you meet. And you're there and you manage to talk about nothing at all for about half an hour before one of you puts up the courage to say, hadn't we better talk about this? That's why we're here. Has anyone been in those situations? I know I've been in that situation. The elephant in the room in Corinth now has to be dealt with. Verse 1. It is reported, Paul says, or actually more accurately, I have heard the disgusting news. Everyone is talking about this. Seems like people in Corinth, even outside the church, know what is going on. And the issue is simply this. A man is having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. That's all we know. That's what the father's wife thinks means. It's his stepmother, probably. We don't know any more. And there's no point in trying to guess. But what we do know is this situation is wrong on so many levels. The first thing is immorality. 
is sexual immorality. You know, we mustn't read this passage and think that God is anti-sex. This is not what this passage is about. God is pro-sex. He created it in the first place. Genesis, the, the beginning of everything, what does God say? He has made the world, he has made it very good, go and multiply. That involves sex. God has said it is very good. But he has a plan for it. And the plan, he has also proclaimed to be very good. And the plan for sex is for a husband and a wife, in marriage, in love and security. And so here he's talking about something very different. He's talking about sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia. And it covers anything that isn't that. Anything that isn't sex within a husband and wife marriage relationship. And you think how often in our world sex derails people. Think how often marriages fall apart because of sex. Or boyfriend and girlfriend relationships get wrapped up in sex before they should. Or people's ministries, ministers, parachurch leaders, whose ministry suddenly comes crashing down because they stumble in this area. You know, today all of us are fallen. All of us are broken. And all of us are very vulnerable in this area. And you know, the enemy prowls around seeking to trip people up. You know, I believe it's really important this morning to say that God's ideal, God's plan for us is sexual holiness. It's sexual holiness. Is that easy? Absolutely not. Very, very difficult. We need to pray. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need one another if we're going to get close to what God calls us to be. So this is immoral. It's an immoral situation. This probably isn't obvious from the passage, but this is also illegal, what is going on in Corinth. Look what Paul says, the pagans do not tolerate what is happening. The Roman law forbade this relationship. And so actually, the church in Corinth could find itself being brought, taken to court for what is going on sexually inside of the church. See how serious that is? It's an illegal situation. Thirdly, it's destructive. Sin, when it is left unchecked, in our lives individually, in a corporate setting, will quickly start to destroy. That's what sin does. It will destroy a fellowship. And what's happening in Corinth is that the very gospel of grace, which means that we can live freedom in freedom, that means that we can live freely to be the people God wants us to be, is being inverted into some kind of freedom like a 1960s music festival. That's the kind of way that they're thinking about grace. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are dead to sin. How can we live in it any longer? When the people in Corinth had accepted Jesus, actually what should have been going on was they should have been coming more like Christ. They should have been dealing with some of these situations that were going on, but the reverse is actually true. They were inverting grace so that it became license to sin, not license to live in freedom. So the whole thing was getting back to front. And then probably the most dangerous of the lot, they are proud. They are proud about what they are doing. This is the real point of disaster. You know, we all sin, don't we? None of us are free of failure. None of us are yet the person that God wants us to be. And you may be sat here today thinking, actually, in my own life, I can think of all kinds of areas where I'm failing. 
But the gravest problem of the lot in Corinth was they were proud of the very thing of which they should have been deeply ashamed. They were proud of it. They were celebrating sin. They were celebrating the very kind of actions that meant that Jesus had to go and die on the cross for them. See what a terrible inversion this was of the gospel. You know, I think it's really important that as we deal with this passage that we realize just how serious a situation the Corinthian church faced. You know, think of it in today's terms. You know, if somebody in our church today was behaving in a criminal way, in an immoral way, they were flaunting their behavior, and us as a church was there feeling proud about what they were doing and celebrating it, that's the kind of situation. What is going on in Corinth is a total mockery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bringing the church into disrepute, subverting the nature of grace. <coughs> Hope you're feeling encouraged. <laughs> Let's carry on. What does Paul do about it? We used to rent a house out in, in Bristol. And this house was fine. But it used to have damp. Um, upstairs, probably damp caused by condensation and, and bad insulation and those kind of things. And every now and again, we'd get those attractive mould patterns growing on the ceiling. You may, you may have seen them. If you've seen them in your own house, you may want to get them treated. <laughs> but we used to ring the landlord, and he would say, oh yeah, I'll pop round, I'll have a look. And he'd pop round, and he'd bring his mould and mildew remover spray and his pot of white paint. And he'd go round, and he'd spray this mould, and then he'd say, I'll, I'll be back later, and I'll paint over it. And he did. And for about three weeks, it looked okay. And then what happened afterwards? It came back. There is always a temptation in church, or in our own lives, if you like, to get out the spiritual bleach, to spray stuff around that makes things look like everything is okay, to get the paint out, paint over stuff, and just hope that, that we can keep it under wraps. Paul actually says this will not do. There is no way that this situation can just be sprayed with spiritual bleach and meant to um, smell okay and look okay. It has to be dealt with. But if we read these verses and we think actually Paul sounds like he's enjoying this, if we read them with any sense that Paul is feeling, great, I get to play judge and jury here, we totally miss the point. Paul is heartbroken here. Absolutely devastated by what is going on. He is so in bits, I don't know if you noticed, he can barely even write about the situation on the ground. So much is it troubling him. You know, God's, God's heart is always broken when we sin, when we turn against him and go our own way. The judgment of God is not something that, that God relishes, but it's something that is in response to his holiness. Billy Montgomery, who was here a few weeks ago, I remember he once told me a story of when he was at Bible college. And it was of one of the fellow students who'd been out preaching, and he came back and he said to the tutor, asked him, what were you preaching about? And he said, well, I gave him this thumping sermon about the, the judgment of God and the coming wrath of God. And he said, I was banging my fists on the pulpit and I was really giving it some. And he said, well, did you do it with tears in your eyes? Did you do it with a heart that was broken? He said, if you didn't, you missed the point. God's heart is broken for his people. If you get the time this afternoon, go and look up the book of Jeremiah. We haven't got time to read it all now, but Jeremiah 8 and 9. I'm just going to read some verses from it. This is what the Lord says. When people fall down, do they not get up? When someone turns away, do they not return? Why then have these people turned away? 
Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to listen. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, what have I done? Each pursues their own course. But then down at verse 21, it says this, and this is the verse where you can see the brokenness of God for his people. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn, and horror grips me. I just get the sense that is God's heart for what was going on in Corinth. Broken at what was going on in the church. But here's a question. What would have happened at this point if the man had repented? If the church had repented? Go on, somebody shout me out an answer. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Total forgiveness and restoration. Sin, once it's brought out into the light, will always be forgiven by God. Jesus says, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But this isn't what's going on here. The sin is being celebrated. The sin is being talked about and rejoiced in. And so we get to what Paul does. In verse 3, he passes judgment. And he says, when the power of Jesus Christ is in your midst, hand this man over to Satan and throw him out. I don't know about you, but I read those verses and I have a sort of sharp intake of breath. Really? Really, Paul? Is that what you're saying? Is this what has to happen here? But Paul's remedy for the situation is based on the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Paul's judgment, but it's weighed against what Jesus is saying. And Paul's remedy for this situation is this. An unrepentant, celebrating sinner cannot be allowed to influence the wider church. God loves both the sinner too much and the church too much to allow this to continue. And so this man is to be thrown out in the hope that by removing the blessings of life together, by removing the blessings of taking communion, the blessings of prayer, the blessings of teaching, by handing him back over to the powers of darkness, he just might be brought to his knees and his spirit saved. He just might be brought back to repentance. See what's going on here. That's what's happening. But then Paul widens the application. Don't have anything to do with people who claim to be godly yet celebrate their sin. Learn to judge from right and wrong within the church. Now this is the hardest thing of this passage. What on earth do we do with it? What on earth do we do with it? You know, there is so much I could say about this. We could go into the whole um, last section and pull apart all those kind of things, but time won't allow us to do that this morning. But for me, this has been on my heart for, for the last three or four weeks. So what? What on earth does this mean? First thing I think we need to say is this passage is not a blueprint for Christian living. This passage deals with an extremely difficult pastoral situation. It deals with something that is very painful. You know, I've been in Christian leadership for quite a long time and I've never had to deal with a situation of this magnitude at all. I know people who have. I know people who've had to literally remove people from fellowship because of issues of child sexual abuse, because of issues of extreme violence in the church, because of issues of people fiddling money in the church and those kind of things, and being unrepentant about what is going on. But this is extreme, what is happening here, and we need to read it as such. And it shouldn't be ever read in isolation from what Paul says elsewhere. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore 
that person gently. Gently. Lovingly. Accountability, one with another. That is the normal mode of Christian living. You know, when we're caught doing something or somebody catches us doing something, that there's that love and that compassion, one with another. So what can we say from this passage? What can we say? Does it have anything to say to us? Or do we just put it on one side as an extreme example? Well, there are two things that I really felt God laid in my heart to say. And the first one is this. This passage is not about condemnation. It is not about condemnation. It is about an unrepentant person celebrating sin. But sadly, you know, very sadly over the years, um, I've talked and I've known people, quite a lot of people who've been close friends, who in the past, in their lives, they've messed up. Things have gone wrong. It may be a relationship has fallen apart. It may be that in some sexual way they've messed up or it may be something to do with money or, or whatever it might be. And actually, they've moved away from that and repented of it. And they've, they've gone in a good direction. But because of the way that sometimes passages like this are read, and sometimes the feeling that actually the church is a place of condemnation, they always live feeling that they're second class. They always live, if you like, with a hangover, that actually my forgiveness isn't quite complete, that restoration isn't complete, that no matter how much they get on their knees before God, that actually they're not going to be fully restored. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I just want to say this morning, if today, if you're feeling under any sense of condemnation from anything that has happened in the past, and it doesn't matter how bad that thing is, doesn't matter what it involves, if you have once come to the foot of the cross and come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you are forgiven. Totally restored. 100%. What amazing news is that? What amazing news. This passage is not for you, and you need to hear that this morning. It is not for you. What is for you is freedom. What is for you is this sense that Jesus comes in love and acceptance to you. If you hear voices telling you otherwise, I would say categorically, ignore them. They are not from God. They may be from yourself. They may be from other Christians. They may be from the enemy. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. They are not coming from the Lord himself. In Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to be taking communion in a few moments. And perhaps if today you are feeling like you are still to some degree sat in that place, you know, come and take communion with real celebration in your heart. Jesus has paid the price. Jesus has forgiven you. But I think there is also a challenge here in this passage for us. One writer on this passage said, actually, you know, Christians, we're quite good about confessing sin. You know, we might be quite happy to label those faults in our own life. But we're not that good at the moment, perhaps, in turning those things into real repentance. You know, repentance actually means that not only we talk about it, but we actually stop doing that thing that we were doing. And that involves going beyond just naming a sin to doing something about it. You know, if I say, oh, I fiddle my tax returns. I don't, by the way, but just as an example. <laughs> or 
yeah, I go out and I get drunk quite regularly or whatever else it might be. And I name them, but I don't then move from them. I can slip into that trap of celebrating those sins that are still in my heart. Perhaps not as in an extreme way as this, but still in a point where actually I'm living with that conflict. You know, God is loving. God's nature is to be loving and merciful. He doesn't want to leave us sat in sin. He loves us too much to leave us sat there. And the question that kept coming back to me and back to me from this passage, when I'm pointing it right in my own heart, is other things in my life at the moment that I'm proud of, of which I should actually be ashamed and bring before the Lord and ask for his forgiveness? Are there those things that are still lurking there deep within me? Do I need to name them? Do I need to come before the cross of Jesus once again to receive mercy and grace and forgiveness and restoration? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And today, it doesn't matter whether your um, issues are 20 years ago, 30 years ago, this week, 20 minutes ago. doesn't matter. The minute we turn to God, we find the heart of the Father, like in the prodigal son, arms open wide, and we find heaven celebrating when we turn and repent. In Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that you sent your son to the cross. We thank you that, as in a few moments, we come and share bread and wine together. That we come as your forgiven people. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Thank you that the weight of condemnation of sin and the law is lifted from us when we are in Christ. Thank you that we can walk forward into freedom. So Lord, help us to throw off that sin that easily entangles. Reveal to us this morning, perhaps those areas where we're still proud, where actually we should be ashamed. But help us not just to name them, but to bring them into the presence of you. Assured of our forgiveness and restoration. Just conscious there may be one or two people here this morning who are feeling that weight of condemnation. Maybe from something that happened years ago. But you've not really broken free of that and you're feeling somehow second class. And God would break those words over you this morning. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. 
Lord, we celebrate all that we are in you. We thank you for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.